So a word of advice to technical founders, do user research, something that we learned the hard way. You can go off and as a technical founder, you can cobble together pretty much anything pretty quickly. Early on, we found ourselves going in directions where we were building things that were very interesting, but maybe out of order, or maybe we needed a different base capability. So over time, our strategy from kind of MVP to post-fundraising today has been predicated on talking to as many people as we can to understand what our solution could help them with specifically, what are the hair and fire problems, and how to best prioritize those features. My name is Tyson Konofsky. I'm the CEO and founder of AutoCloud. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today how Tyson Konofsky set out to build the world's best platform to enable you to get your infrastructure to the cloud. All this and more on Code Story. Tyson Konofsky was born in South Africa and traveled a lot as a kid. During his childhood, he was majorly influenced by his parents, who ran the Gottman Institute. It was his parents' job to take the content that the Gottmans created and deliver their research to the world. And Tyson helped them by building the first version of their learning management system. Outside of tech, he loved to ride motorcycles and do rock climbing. In 2015, Tyson started a company who focused on migrating enterprise workloads to the cloud. After being acquired, he realized they kept doing the same thing over and over again at the larger company. At 18,000 feet in the air while climbing a mountain, he made the decision to quit his job and build a solution to enable cloud migration and much more. This is the creation story of AutoCloud. AutoCloud is a platform that does two things. It helps folks deploy any cloud resource to any cloud in minutes instead of weeks by using a next-generation Terraform generation capability. And then when resources are live on cloud, it helps ensure that every single cloud resource is aligned with your business so that you can ensure from, say, a governance, a compliance, a cost perspective, that you have true visibility into all the different cloud resources that you have. And in terms of how the company got started, this is actually an interesting story. So I started a company back in 2015 that helped enterprises migrate workloads to the cloud. So think of you're a bank and you have a data center, you want to shut it down. How do you actually go to cloud? What does that process look like? And for some of us that have been developing on the cloud for a long time, the answers might seem obvious. But you have to remember, for folks that have up until recently been operating on mainframes, there's a little bit of complexity as you move towards this new elastic paradigm. So at that company, we would do things like help folks understand the overall go-to-cloud roadmap, the journey, the process, the TCO, how to actually build with infrastructure's code, putting in place the correct security governance and compliance models to effectively operate, all that stuff. And that company ended up being acquired. We had a tiny success by a management consulting firm here in Chicago, where I reside. I joined as their head of technology. And time and time again at this larger organization, 
we would go in and we'd do the same thing. We'd help folks go to cloud, figure out the paradigm for how to correctly operate and live in a modern cloud environment. I was actually down in South America. We decided that we wanted to try and climb Aconcagua, which for those that don't know, is the tallest mountain outside of the Himalayas. It's a little bit over 22,000 feet, I believe. And we go down to Aconcagua and we go up to base camp and we're getting acclimated and we ended up getting stuck at one of the camps in a tent for a couple days because there was a bad storm. And it was in that tent, deprived of oxygen at, say, 17,000, 18,000 feet, that I decided, hey, I'm going to quit my job and take all the learnings that I've put together over the last several years and build a product that can help folks go to cloud and then operate effectively when they're on cloud in order to give greater visibility and understanding to modern cloud ops. And, you know, that's a really important thing that a lot of companies should have that they didn't. So made the decision then and there, um, came back a couple weeks later, quit my job, and that's how AutoCloud was born. Let's dive into the MVP. So tell me about that first product you built. How long did it take you to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? So I've been a developer for quite a long time at this point. So like every good developer, I completely over-architected the initial MVP to start. The MVP as it was, was a simple platform that would essentially take your cloud data and allow you to visualize an automatically generated architecture diagram of that data. So let's say that you have an AWS account. In that AWS account, you have things like S3 buckets, EC2 instances, auto-scaling groups, EIPs, whatever you have. We'd suck all that data in and we would essentially allow you to visualize that footprint and understand what you had. This was before we really supported any of the insights around security, compliance, billing. So it's basically just a picture of what you had running and that was it. And to do that, we used a couple interesting technologies. There's an Amazon product that, lucky for us, is being deprecated called Amazon Sumerian. It was a defunct game engine that was a Swedish company that was purchased in 2016 and rolled into Amazon Web Services. And this made it really easy to build, say, AR, VR, or 3D experiences in the context of Amazon. So we ended up using it, and I'm regretful that we did and that we didn't use something like a Babylon JS, which is much more open source and easy to use. And that was essentially the visualization component that we used for the first version. On top of that, React front-end, TypeScript backend. I love the ORM Prisma, which is the GraphQL ORM. Um, I think they recently did a, a big round of capital. So those were kind of the core technologies along with Postgres and AWS to host the thing. So with any MVP, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs about you know, what you're going to build in the beginning, you know, what you're going to take on as technical debt, etc. Right? And, and you you alluded to some of those in a high level, but I want to dive into some of them. So tell me about those decisions and trade-offs that you had to make and how you coped with them. Any founder, when you're starting off, if you're a technical founder and you can kind of code out the first version, you definitely have a little bit of a leg up because you can bring your idea to life and prove value. But that said, we were still very strapped from a bandwidth perspective. So I think initially the goal was to, hey, let's see if we can accurately represent a cloud environment in a picture. What would that look like? How could we make that happen? 
And instead of focusing on things which I kind of wish we had done at this point, like insights to start, how much is my cloud costing? Where are the security problems? Are all the same services being deployed from a governance perspective? We focus on that visualization. You know, one of the learnings that we had there was the insights are, are really important. And I'm thinking if we could go back in time and change something, we probably would have started with our open source components, which is called Cloud Graph. It's essentially a universal GraphQL API for AWS, Azure, GCP, and Kubernetes that does sophisticated data processing. It's a CLI tool that allows you to go off, ingest all of your different cloud data, and then have a single place where you can query all of that data and get back the information from it. So I think that by focusing on visualization to start, it made for really good demos. It made for kind of a fundraising process where we had a very visual component to show investors, and there was a lot of interest there. But from a pure usability perspective in those early MVP days, I think it would have been a lot more effective to focus on providing insights to developers so they could actually fix problems. Okay, so then you've got your MVP, right? How did you progress the product from there and mature it. And I think what I'm interested in there, Tyson, is, is how you built your roadmap, how you decided, okay, now this is the next most important thing to build. So a word of advice to technical founders, do user research, something that we learned the hard way. You can go off and as a technical founder, you can cobble together pretty much anything pretty quickly. But if people don't want to buy that thing, then you don't want to waste time chasing up the wrong hill, so to speak. One of the hard lessons we learned was to do user research. And early on, we found ourselves going in directions where we were building things that were very interesting, but maybe out of order, or maybe we needed a different base capability. So over time, our strategy from kind of MVP to post-fundraising today has been predicated on user research and very effectively, or efficiently rather, talking to as many people as we can to understand pain, what our solution could help them with specifically, what are the hair and fire problems, and how to best prioritize those features so that we can get them to market for users to use quickly. So I think that overall it comes down to just talking to people, getting out, reaching out to your network. There's a company called SageTap, which I recently learned about. We just did a pilot with them. They offer product market fit as a service to companies that build next generation cloud technologies. Without being too salesy, they basically go, they introduce you, you record a pitch, you upload that pitch, you can put a bunch of user research questions together, and then they run that by, say, 10 directors of engineering for Fortune 100 companies, something like that, in order to give you feedback on what is the urgency, is this solving a real problem, do you have budget, who should use this problem, things of that nature. So, you know, we do have a better product market fit today, but I would have we would have very much benefited from using something like that back in the day. Well, let's switch to team. So how did you go about building your team? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? Team is such an important thing to get right. I think that if you have folks that maybe aren't a great culture fits or aren't operate aren't suited to operate well in the context of a startup where there's a lot of uncertainty it can kind of derail your entire software development life cycle and make things much much harder and fortunately we got super lucky with our team starting with our founders we have our founders are chris koning somebody that is an amazing technical architect and our cto and head of platform i've worked with chris previously for many years i in fact hired him at my first company we also have drew gilliam 
who's our COO. Again, I've known Drew for about 10 years. We started a company together previously. Awesome guy. And then we actually also have my wife and our chief product officer, Evelyn Latour, who has a deep, deep background in user experience, user research, product, and software development. So I think starting with that core, we had a really solid foundation of high-achieving individuals that are really hungry to try to make this product come to life and share a vision with the world. And from there, we made a point to be very picky when it came to hiring. It can be really hard to hire technical folks. We got really lucky early on by hiring somebody that was able to help us build a Argentinian and Mexican-based software delivery team. Everybody that we have on the team, and we have folks in other countries as well, but everybody that we have on the team is just an amazing performer, really excited to work with us building the future of cloud, and everybody just has an amazing attitude. We do have engineers and folks in the United States, but a lot of our development work is with these folks that we have found offshore. Um, that basically consisted of me emailing a ton of people, working with other folks that we had already onboarded to find new people that were interested. But yeah, they've been absolute rock stars to date. And we've tried to form the team around very senior engineers. For our seed round, which is where we're at as a company, we're only hiring folks and we've only hired folks that are a little bit more experienced just because what we're doing is pretty complex from a tech perspective and we need folks that just have a good amount of domain expertise without having to have too much hand-holding. We'll open it up for a little bit less high bar of experience later on, but that's a little bit about team and kind of how we've come to date. We're 18 people and we'll likely stick at that mark for at least the next six to nine months until we raise our Series A. Well, let's flip to scalability. So did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or have you been fighting this as you've grown and gained traction? A little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. So I think the core technical foundation is rather scalable. There's, of course, optimizations that we have to make in regards to dealing with larger cloud footprints. You can run up against, say, API rate limit requests if you're trying to query and get back a result list of 10,000 VMs or EC2 instances. But for the most part, we've done a good job of knowing where our North Star is, where we're going, and ensuring that we're at least building in the right direction. Will be will there be things that we throw away at Series A? Absolutely. Did we make a couple bad choices? I would say bad choices with things like Amazon Sumerian. It's going to be deprecated and shut off. And we have to move to a different visualization platform. Absolutely. But I think for the most part, we've been pretty cognizant of starting off with good foundations that will scale in order to alleviate a little bit of that pain around technical debt that inevitably comes in in later rounds as you move fast and break things. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? It comes down to a couple different areas. The first is our open source contribution. We released our open source core, which is what AutoCloud itself is built on top of. Again, it's a product called CloudGraph, the universal GraphQL API for AWS, Azure, GCP, and Kubernetes. We've seen a good amount of community support. Folks of all in companies of all shapes and sizes are using this. And as somebody that is passionate about open source, it just feels really good to give back and make it a little bit easier to solve some of the operational day-to-day -day challenges that one would have around, say, asset inventories or cloud security posture management or overall cloud visibility. Our team has done a wonderful job of building out that product. 
um, and building it in a way that is really easy to build on top of if you'd like to make your own provider or add data for new clouds. That's one. And then I think the second thing that I feel proud about when I think about AutoCloud is our company culture and the folks that we have on board. Everybody shows up every day ready to work hard. Everybody's incredibly positive. I think that we have a really nice, nerdy, but nice engineering culture where we're all able to work really nicely together and we're all aligned with what we want to build, all kind of on the same page. So there's no excuses. Things are always getting done, you know, more or less as they should be. And I feel like we've we've lucked out with our the folks that we've been able to hire, the people that we work with as customers, and the overall culture that we've been able to establish to this point. Uh, nothing wrong with a little bit nerdy. Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> I think that's good. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Okay, so a mistake that we made. I think that looking back, before we started talking to customers as much as we should have, we made mistakes all the time, frankly. I think startups are a lot of lot of time, especially with technical founders who just have a desire to build and get things created and get them out to the world. A lot of times, maybe you don't need to build that thing. Maybe there's a different way that you can go about getting value to a customer that doesn't involve custom development work. When we originally started off AutoCloud, we wanted to build a very, very sophisticated Terraform generation system. And we just weren't at the size where that would be really feasible to do just because it required a ton of development work. We were only four founders at the time. And with only three of us coding, we spent a lot of time trying to build out those capabilities when we weren't ready. We had kind of a come to Jesus moment, so to speak, when we were like, hey, we don't think we can get this thing done. We don't think that we're going to be able to promise the value or be able to actually deliver the value that we promised to folks. So we decided to go in a slightly alternate direction to start, which focused on more visibility and insights. And we kind of put that capability in the back burner. And then strategically, as we were able to raise more capital, bring on additional staff, and have the ability from a bandwidth perspective to get the features created and done, we re-examined that. And we're now diving back into it headfirst. But I think that, you know, a lot of startups, you can start building something that either is not going to work, take too much time, isn't the highest possible value that you can immediately create. And you can spend a lot of time doing that and getting stuck as opposed to focusing on kind of the things that can drive the fastest value to begin with. So I think that would probably be our, our biggest mistake, prioritization and being able to understand what to do at the right time. That makes sense. Is there any part of that you feel like is hindsight, seeing it a little more clearly? Because it's such a hard thing to order things in the, in the priority, the perfect way, right? Yeah, it is. And I think that the hindsight for me comes down to talking to the right customers. So not just talking to anybody, not just talking to cloud architects, but talking to the people that would be the actual users of your software and ensuring that you're able to get what they perceive as as a solution to their hair on fire problem in your domain to market as quick as possible. The customer a lot of times, especially in the in the early stage, knows best, right? They're very experienced, they work at scale, they have very sophisticated flows for how they do things. So I think that the hindsight for me would be a little bit more chatting with folks to understand how we can best bring the right features to market in the right ways. Well, Tyson, what does the future look like for the product in AutoCloud and the team? 
we're heavily focused on a couple different capabilities at the moment. We're trying to make it really dead simple for anybody to take any cloud workload and get it to AWS, Azure, GCP, and Kubernetes. We think that if you go back to, say, the 90s and the original promise, and even before, the promise of a visual code builder, those are really, really tricky to get right because ultimately you need to do something that involves a capability that you don't have. And then your code is written in some kind of wonky way and you're bought into a paradigm and you might have an escape hatch to be able to add on the thing you need, but it's kind of challenging. It's no fun. So for us, we're kind of reinventing the paradigm of low code and cloud ops in the sense that we want to make it really easy for anybody to take, say, their existing cloud workloads, templatize those workloads into patterns that they can reuse so that you can take your cloud sandbox and turn that into a diagramming tool that can generate the resources you need to be ingested by AutoCloud and turned into Terraform code so you can leverage those IAC, those infrastructure's code benefits. We're heavily focused on that set of things right now. Strategically, the reason that we're doing that is you look to the overall cloud market and just the acceleration of go to cloud. A lot of us have been on cloud for many years, but there are companies out there, large companies, that are just getting started with their overall cloud journey. And by making a tool that helps facilitate cloud migration, that has an established pattern and paradigm of infrastructures, code workloads that you can just take from us and easily deploy for reference architectures or using your own code or ingesting current workloads. It makes it really easy for folks to get to cloud in a much faster amount of time. And that's kind of where we're focused a lot of our attention on. And then the other thing really quick is they're the insights, right? There's a lot of powerful insights that AutoCloud can currently give around cloud security posture management around blast radius analysis for compromised resources, around IAM provisioning and understanding if resources are over-provisioned, right? Going deep in the security and compliance space is something that we're, we're focused on as well. And then the last area is just cost, right? Having visibility on a granular level and understanding cloud costs, where resources are going, if there's any major cost centers, if things can be optimized is an area that we're exploring as we look to the future. Well, let's switch to you, Tyson. Who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really any person you look up to and why. I think that for me, there's a couple people that have been really great influences. Um, a lot of our current investors are wonderful people. And I don't want to name anybody specific just because uh, I don't want to miss any names. We have quite a few of them. But the current investors we have have been really supportive, very knowledgeable about bringing products to market, really helpful. Um, mentors and other folks that I look up to, like shout out to Mark Ackler from Math Ventures here in Chicago, has been an amazing mentor to date, helping understand kind of nuanced questions around topic areas that we might not have domain expertise in. And then lastly, I think that, you know, another, I guess, cliche answer is my father. Uh, my father, Alan, was the CEO of the Gottman Institute for many years. He is one of the, the best people I've seen that is able to work with and scale teams. Uh, maybe it helped working at a relationship company, but he's been something, somebody that's been a source of inspiration and somebody that I look up to for overall strategy, help, and guidance. So those are kind of the folks that I think have been most impactful in terms of influencing how I work. Well, we talked about a mistake earlier, and it might be a similar answer, but I'm just going to ask anyway. If you could go back to the beginning 
What would you do different? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? I would have focused on open source to start because we've seen a lot of uptake and support from the open source community with what we're doing. I think that the thing that you really want to do as a founder is you want to get to a place where, you know, you've, you think about it, you've quit your job, you're taking a big risk, you're working night and day to get a product to market so that you can raise capital to hire a team, scale and build, at least if you like to go the venture capital route or the institutional capital route in some sense. So looking back there, it's all about getting to the place where you have traction the fastest. And I think that if we had focused on open source to start, we would have had a a little bit of a quicker fundraising journey. As it is, it took us about a year to raise our initial capital. Um, A lot of that was a challenging time for me personally, just because raising capital as a first-time founder, there's a lot of nuance, there's a lot of things that you have to do correctly that you might not know. So I think that if we had had a little bit more traction to start, it would have made that fundraise process a little bit easier on us, which is always a good thing. So last question, Tyson. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world and can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? So I grew up, I remember one of the shows that was really popular when I was in school was the show Entourage. For those that haven't seen it, it chronicles the life of a up-and-coming actor in L.A. and his entourage of people that are able to kind of follow in his wake and live this crazy, extravagant lifestyle of just excess. And I think that, you know, looking back to that time, I think that there was kind of a generational mentality of, hey, I want to do something and be the next Mark Zuckerberg and get rich quick and do something that has a really big impact on the world. While that's a, a great dream and I totally support it, the thing that most people don't realize is that it takes a lot of time and sweat and energy, a lot of sacrifice to start a company. You know, We're at a place where we're eyeing a significant Series A in the next few months and there's no way that we would have, been, would have been able to do that without the hard work and commitment of all of the founders, of myself, of the early employees, of everybody that really put their lives and their souls into building out the product. If I were to give advice to a young entrepreneur, it would be persevere, right? Things might not come easy like you see on a show like Entourage. You might not snap your fingers and have everything figured out. So you got to be prepared to kind of roll around in the darkness, so to speak, until you're able to find a path and figure out how to best effectively turn your dreams into reality. I think that a lot of people give up too early, especially when things get hard. And a lot of people also start companies, at least from my perspective, what I've seen, without doing enough research. I've talked about research a lot before, but without doing enough research previously to starting their company. So I think that if you're starting off Make sure that you can validate your hypothesis that's something that people want. Make sure that um, you're doing things in a differentiating way that have a unique factor to it that allows it to be a much better solution than what's currently out there. And be ready to just work your butt off and work hard. It's going to be tough. You're going to get told no a hundred times, a thousand times even. And it can be really depressing when things aren't going your way. But ultimately, if you can persevere, then I think you can make it. Fantastic advice. Well, Tyson, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of AutoCloud. Thanks so much for having me, Noah. It was a pleasure being here. And this concludes another chapter 
of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.